You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. All right. Well, we embark on a new journey this morning. Um, Pastor Wright began a series he's working on with you guys on evangelism, and I'm embarking on a new series here on human sexuality. Um, Now, how do these two relate? And one level, they don't. Um, And so we'll be doing a couple weeks of each back and forth. So um, hopefully there's not too much whiplash. Uh, Maybe it'll give you the opportunity to to study uh, our various topics while, you know, we're away, and then you can be ready when we come back for the next section. Um, But at the same time, they both are relating to how we think about being Christians in this world. How are we, what is our role as Christians in the world that we live in? So Pastor Wright's talking about evangelism and our job as witnesses in the world, uh, being a light to the world um, as a church, but also as individuals. And then now we're talking about, um, with human sexuality, um, the fact that uh, we have a target on our back as a church. And the world is very much in disagreement with with us, with God's word on this topic. And so we're thinking here um, about how we understand sexuality biblically. And there's a number of aims that I hope uh, to accomplish with this series. One of those is for us to um, ourselves understand the Bible better, to understand the whys of God's word. Um, it's, I don't think we're, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I don't think um, we can any longer simply say, well, the Bible says it. Now, for God's people, that should be enough. But the world has these strong, compelling narratives about sexuality, that if we don't understand the whys about our nature, about creation, about who God is, then we're going to be tossed to and fro by the world's narratives that are so easy for us to listen to and to be um, deluded by. And so the wise to help us um, be further rooted, but I know everybody in this room is concerned about children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, family members, neighbor kids. Um, What is the world saying to the next generation? And we need to be able to equip the next generation in our own homes, our grandchildren, and so forth. And so hopefully this can enrich our own understanding so that we can understand how we can help the next generation. Um, All right, so I'm, again, getting ahead of myself here. Uh, A few brief points of introduction here. Why are we discussing this now? Um, Well, maybe we're 10 years too late. Um, Not that it hasn't been discussed. Um, This is perennially an issue, and I was convicted as recently I was preaching through Titus in the evening. Um, Titus, uh, Paul writes this, calls Titus to rebuke the false teachers sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And uh, that's a real theme in Titus is rebuking false teaching. And going through this, this is really the issue of our day uh, that Christians need to be aware of, and we need to rebuke. It is our call, our obligation as officers, as a minister, to rebuke false teaching. And so that is one of my goals here is to strongly rebuke so that all of us um, know what the Bible says. So that was very convicting for me earlier this year, and it really got my wheels turning and saying, we need to do this um, on a a more systematic level. 
uh, 50 years ago, our evangelism and apologetics first dealt with theology. We talked about God and sin and judgment and grace. There was a general worldview people had about morality, um, about what a good life is, how to live your life, that we didn't have to touch. And uh, you think of you know, evangelism explosion, uh, the, the, the question, right, um, you, you know, the training evangelism com- uh, explosion, the question you lead with, if you die today and you're in, in heaven uh, or, or standing before the gates of heaven and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? Uh, what's your response going to be? Well, maybe 50 years ago, there's enough cultural understanding to like people could think that was a legitimate question. Now they're like, what in the world? There's no heaven. There's no God. Uh, so we're actually moving to a different, we're, 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 our, our conversation with unbelievers is moving to a different place. And even now, our first conversation with unbelievers, typically, I don't know how much you're engaging with non-believers, it goes to sexuality first. Our ethics is the first thing non-believers want to talk, talk to us about. Uh, even if we want to talk about God and these other things, they're going to say, well, but you Christians are so hateful. Why don't you Christians love my, you know, my gay nephew? You don't. You, want to, you, you reject him. Um, and so the, the, I think at the forefront of our dealing with unbelievers today is really not even the theology. It's the ethics, and we have, to give an, we have to give an account to the world of our ethics, of godly ethics, of biblical ethics. And so the, the Christian witness is first questioned on the ground of ethics, of how we live, who we are. What does it mean to be man and woman, humankind? What is that? Anthropology, our doctrine of man, is, is that, that, that biggest issue today that the world is challenging and questioning that we have to be prepared to give an answer for. The church's challenge today, both to those inside and outside, is to properly explain the whys of Christian ethics. Because of the allure of the world's narratives, we have to confront the world's powerful narratives by explaining not just the commands of God, but also the reasons for them grounding um, God's commands in what they come out of, the nature of God, the character of God, uh, the nature of humanity, what it means to be made in God's image. So we don't just say what the commands are, but also we need to exposit the whys. And that is my hope that we can do some of that together, looking at the whys so we can be more fully rooted um, in this. Um, I've been... um, um, encouraged by, uh, influenced by um, the uh, teaching of uh, Carl Truman. You may have heard of him, who's doing a lot of very good work for us thinking culturally, how do we end up at this moment with some good diagnoses um, and some, some good prescriptions. And one of the things that Truman is calling us to, and if you're doing the men's Argyle in, that's hopefully the next book we'll be doing is a Truman book. Um, he's calling us to really engage with nature, natural law, with what it means to be created in God's image, um, that nature has an order. And this is one of the things in my evening series on Genesis, I'm trying to emphasize that there is order in the universe and that order indicates there is morality. There is a direction embedded in all of creation from the very fact that it was created by God. And so I think we need to return to some of these things and fully tease them out. Um, and I have some good resources. I'm not going to give them to you today yet, but in time, um, some good resources to encourage you in your own study. 
beyond this. Um, all right, any, any comments? There's so many ways. I'm sure many, many comments. I've already received like four or five different people this morning with uh, different comments about this. Um, this is going on up in our neighboring school district. This is going on even in Hudson. You know, these things that um, I've heard even this morning. So I know there's lots of thoughts, but anything pertinent to what, we've, what I've been discussing so far? Say that again? You're absolutely right on engaging with mm-hmm. others. That's exactly yeah. where they go. And you do need to know. Yeah, we do. We do. That's right. So what um, I'm going to discuss kind of my plan here. Um, how we're going to move forward. And I'm going to be using initially the PCA General Assembly um, study report on human sexuality. Here, here's a brief, um, brief background on how our denomination has thought about this. 2019, there's a motion that passed, uh, be it resolved that the 47th General Assembly create an ad interim committee. Ad interim is just uh, different from a permanent committee. Permanent committees operating on an ongoing basis ad interim just for the period, for this period of time. Uh, so it's a short-term committee uh, with one goal, uh, create an ad interim committee to study the topic of human sexuality with particular attention to the issues of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and transgenderism, and to prepare a report. It was a wonderful job that they did. Um, here's the committee members. Um, you may know some of these names. Brian Chapel, um, who used to be the president of our denominational seminary and now is our stated clerk. Kevin DeYoung, who you probably know of, uh, who's a pastor in Charlotte, previously in Michigan. Um, Dr. Tim Keller, who I'm sure you know of, recently uh, deceased this year. A big loss for our denomination. Uh, Jim Widenar, uh, men you may remember um, 2020, he came and spoke at our men's retreat here. Um, so he's uh, a ruling elder out in, or no, sorry, teaching elder out in the Pittsburgh area. And TE, teaching elder, RE, ruling elder, if you're not used to that nomenclature. A ruling elder, Dr. Derek Halverson, at the time he was president of our denominational um, college, Covenant Seminary. Uh, he's just stepped away from that this year. Um, Kyle Keating, um, who is an educator, and Jim Pachta, who is a counselor. So we had um, a diversity of kind of uh, perspectives from the PCA, um, but they came out with a wonderful, wonderful report. It's called 2021, they reported, because 2020 we didn't have General Assembly because of COVID. The AIC Committee on Human Sexuality reported uh, in 2021 a 62-page written report, um, and you can find it there. I'm going to pass out uh, something in a few moments here. It's going to have the link on there as well. I encourage you to go get it and read it. Um, and um, uh, and engage with this. It's actually not that long. Um, 62 pages might sound daunting, but it's not. Some of the reports they can do are far longer than that. I will say the strengths of this report really deal with the same-sex attraction issue, uh, dealing with desire and temptation, um, the nature of sin. Uh, so that's really the strength of the report. It does not really go into transgenderism the way I would like. It doesn't really go into some of these issues that I hope we can dig up further. So my plan is, uh, it's on the next page. Um, my, well, I'll get to there, tell you more, more about my plan. Um, talked about this, and I misspelled the conjunction, but um, seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Um, as we understand the Ten Commandments, they are kind of, uh, all of them give basically the high point representation of an entire class of sins that are wrong, but even more than that, they're directing us in a positive direction. Here, you shall not commit adultery is not simply saying a married person cannot have uh, sexual intercourse with somebody who they're not married to. Uh, it's saying that, but that's not all 
that's prohibited. This is the, the, rep, the, the kind of worst representation of an entire class of sexual sin. Um, and or maybe a most identifiable um, sin that represents the entire class. And so this talks about the full gamut of human sexuality, the call to sexual holiness, even marriage, um, as our divines have done in uh, helping us understand the seventh commandment. So we're really in seventh commandment territory as we're going through this, even though we're not going to be um, you know, referring to it word by word each time because it's very generalized. But as we dive in, we're going to see our, our um, tradition's reflection on this and how helpful it is. Um, commands related to sexuality derive from our nature as made male and female in the image of God. And so, you shall not commit adultery is not a arbitrary command by God. It's not just some arbitrary thing that he put out there to make life miserable and difficult for us. It is actually a positive thing to guide us to live in a way that leads to our greatest joy and happiness and flourishing. So it is a wonderful gift of God to tell us how we are to live. This is part of our nature, how we were made. So we're going to be, be looking for the next couple of weeks at what's, what are called the 12 statements. Um, and this is part of the report. It's a summary of the, 12, of the, of the report um, that uh, the authors put together, and they really designed it for use in these kinds of settings. So we're going to try it. We're going to go through these 12 statements. Really, we're probably going to hit 11 or 10 of them. We're not going to go all of them in detail. Um, but we're going to go through most of them in detail. And so my plan is to cover most of these statements in four weeks, including today. And then after we go through these statements, we're going to go back to a fuller, more full discussion, really, of the, of the topics we're talking about today, and that's marriage and gender, um, because those are really at the forefront of a lot of what we're talking about. As we go through these 12 statements, they're going to do a good job of helping us think through desire, um, the gay Christian idea, um, those types of things. And then we're going to return to come back to marriage and gender, sexual, gender and sex, male, female, um, and, and really root them in creation and nature. And then really, we need to, I think, more intentionally, we're going to talk about it as we go, but I want to intentionally help us think about um, how do we relate to a world around us that's very different from us. So as we go through, I want us to kind of keep that in mind, but I do want us to come back at the end to think about it. So that's my plan at this point, um, seven, eight weeks-ish. So we'll see how that goes. So what I want us to do, do you have those, Brandon? Um, I'll take half of them for this half of the room, if you can help the other half of the room. Um, I have... This is too few. Um, so if you guys can share, I have 40 copies. Um, and uh, if maybe we get to the back and we're, we still need a lot more, somebody in the back could help us out and grab some other, uh, make some copies of it. Um, this is word for word statements one and two of the AIC report on human sexuality. Um, at the top, again, there's the, uh, the link you can go online. Um, to find this, and I really do encourage you to do that. And so what my plan is here, we're going to look at uh, statements one and two. Statement one is marriage. Statement two is image of God. Really, statement two is on um, male, female, sex, and gender issues. Um, And we're going to look at these today. Now that I've done 16 minutes of preliminary stuff, we have 30 minutes uh, to actually get in, which is why we're only doing two today. Hopefully, we can do 15 minutes on each um, for the rest of our time. All right. While y'all are passing that out, I'm going to go ahead, though, and make a start at this. We still need, back corner still needs a bunch. Who doesn't have any? Okay, it's coming. Great. Perfect. Still making their way back there. 
All right, I should have done this earlier, but that was my neglect. So I'm going to start, and we're just going to walk through it, um, and we're going to open our Bibles. So if you have Bibles, um, I encourage you to use those. Is there a cart with Bibles back there? Maybe we'll get those back if, if you need Bibles. We should have some available. If they're not today, we'll make sure they're ready for next time. Um, we will, um, yeah, so we'll be, we'll be working through that and get them on your phone, however. So let's just start at the beginning. Statement one on marriage. We affirm that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. All right, pause, step back. This report was roughly adopted by the GA. GA said, this is a good statement. We encourage this, we distribute it, we want everybody to study this in the PCA. So all this is basically has the, the stamp of approval of the General Assembly of the PCA. Um, so just putting that, that out there, I forgot to say that. So we, they come out affirming kind of what marriage, uh, kind of what the constituent parts of marriage are. It doesn't actually start with defining marriage. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but we're defining who can be a part of marriage at the beginning. We affirm that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. We're not going to go through every passage, but I just want us to start with a few of these passages here um, because they are so fundamental to all this. So let's turn to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is where... Um this is where God has cre- is creating woman. Um, and uh, Adam needs a helper. Adam is alone. It's not good for him to be alone. So God says, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Um, helper here doesn't just mean assistant, right? Somebody I'm going to assist. Uh, Adam's the main player. I'm going to make an assistant to help the assistant out or have an assistant to help the main player out. That's not what a helper means here. Um, it's more of a compatriot, a fellow warrior, kind of an idea. To make a helper fit for him, somebody who congrues with him, somebody who is helpful for him, somebody who fits in many ways here. Um, out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast, and so he makes, um, we go to verse uh, 21, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord made had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has was taken out of man. Therefore, and so this is really where, where this passage is going, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the natural state for a man and a woman is marriage. They were created for marriage for one another. Now, that doesn't mean if somebody's not married, they're an incomplete human or anything like that. But the goals, the telos of our male and femaleness is to be united together in a particular bond of marriage. And it says here, there is one flesh. There is one flesh that um, arises in this particular relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. So here we have Adam and Eve together, one flesh. Um, Let's flip over to Matthew 19, where we see Christ's um, own commentary on this. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, he's answering the Pharisees who are trying to test him and make him stumble. Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, according to Genesis 2. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here, the emphasis on there's two, there's only two, that God brings together for one into one flesh, a union, a comprehensive union of these two persons now in one flesh. And so what God brings together, man should not separate. This is a holy um, state that God brings a man and a woman into, and it is not to be undone. So let man not separate. So we have one man and one woman clearly here in Scripture. Obviously, there's more places we can go. Um, and Westminster Confession of Faith 24.1 says this exact same thing as well. We don't need to go there. So marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Now, again, this is the statement of what is true. We are not really touched on it briefly, but we are not really getting into the whys of this yet. And I hope, again, to circle back more at the end and help us do more of that why. What is it about male and female that congrue? Um, Why is this for male and female, uh, one man, one woman together to be married? Um, let's, Let's move forward in our statement one here. Um, sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be cherished and is reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. I think this is implied by the one flesh language. The one flesh language has a lot of implications that we can chase down. Um, But here it's going explicitly. It's not just saying what marriage is, but sexual intimacy was created for the male-female marriage relationship for one man and one woman to enjoy in this one flesh bond that they now have. And in fact, historically, Christians have always said the wedding is consummated by the act of sexual union. That is what consummates the marriage. Um, And historically speaking, you can annul a marriage, say it never happened if it is never consummated. Um, Because this is so important and integral to a marriage relationship. Um, We're not going to go through Proverbs 5 right now, but sexual intimacy is designed for the marriage relationship. So now we're going, uh, the next statement is going to help us take a step back and say, why marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? It's, It's very briefly touching on this. Marriage was instituted by God for the mutual help and blessing of husband and wife for procreation and the raising together of godly children and to prevent sexual immorality. Three things noted here, um, and it's quoting Westminster 24.2, which I think actually has four, and they're putting together two of them in one of these here, Um, but the same content. So first, it's marriage was instituted by God for mutual help and blessing of husband and wife. And that's where we see it's not good for man to be alone, back to Genesis 2. It's not good for um, man, in a general sense, to not have woman for a man in a particular sense to not have a woman. Now, again, there's, um, there's a, a legitimate call to singleness in our lives now, right? Jesus was single. He's not less of a human or person because he didn't marry. Um, but this is generally speaking the design. It is not good for man to be alone. That's why woman is here. That is why Eve was created to provide, as it says here, that mutual help and blessing. And that mutuality is important because it's not, again, helper in the sense of she's his assistant. She's lesser than. She just does whatever he wants to make him happy. No, there's a mutuality here, a mutual help. It's not the wife serving the husband. It's not the husband just serving the wife. It's them serving one another and helping one another. 
Um, and that's where, you know, Ephesians 5, uh, submit to one another. And then it says, wives submit, and then husbands love, right? So there's a, a particularity to the relationship, but begins with, we submit to one another, and we love one another. And this is about service to one another. So it's a mutual help and blessing to us, right? Companionship here. Um, just having somebody to walk through life with. There's so many ways that marriage is a blessing, and it's designed for all of these wonderful things. Um, we'll stop there for, on this first um, purpose of marriage. Comments, feedback? We haven't argued yet against gay marriage because that is the same argument. That's right, yeah. So this isn't an argument against gay marriage um, because they'd say, yeah, well, clearly, marriage is for this. And so um, this is, we just, two men want to do this together. Um, and so the language here isn't an argument against that. There's other things that would be, I think, undergirding this. But you're right. We haven't, and we haven't explicitly touched that yet. Except for that it's one man. One. Yeah, that's right. For, yeah, yeah, for sure. This purpose, though, having mutual companionship, right? People, um, but, but I do think what we need to um, be clear of um, is that the marriage relationship is not just like a super friend. Right? This isn't like a, a friendship on level 10. There's something very different. And in fact... Historically, um, that emotional support of a friendship um, wasn't actually necessary for a marriage. And you know what? I think that's okay to not have that same kind of uh, friendship in a marriage. Now, it's wonderful to have friendship in marriage, and that's often the highest ideal people chase when they're pursuing marriage, but I don't think that's a fundamental requirement for marriage. Um, there's other things going on there. But um, so I do think that's where we can push back. Our culture's narrative is marriage is about what I want and what I need and what the help and support I need to get in this life. And I do want to push against that. I don't think number one here is saying any of that. It's saying this is about me and my needs and what I need to feel completed. That's not what this is. Um, this is a lifelong um, companionship, walking with one another through difficulties, through hardships, even if you're not best friends, whatever that means for you. Um, I think that is absolutely A-OK. Okay, so this report, is this 12 of these, 12 of these statements? That's right, 12 of those statements plus a whole lot more. No, no, okay. no. So this is a summary of a lot of the work that they've done in the report. So this is, this is not all it talks about marriage. There's a lot more. Um, I'm gonna go back after we've gone through these statements and do an entire you know, week on marriage, getting into more of these things, um, more detailed. Statements are to the church or to the world or to both? Yeah, both. When we talk about the ethics and the yeah, yeah. So you'll see it's set up in, um, it really is affirmation and denial. So the first part we affirm, second part is a denial. Nevertheless, we do not believe. So it's actually trying to um, con, uh, uh, argue against um, other views, whether in the church or outside the world. Um, so it's, it's doing both. It's what, saying what we affirm, and the second paragraph is what we deny, um, pushing back against other things. Yeah, good question. Kind of on that track, I think it doesn't take long for us to get off track from culture because we're going to start by saying marriage was instituted by God. Right. They would say it's 
confined by government. So. Right, right. Yeah, and, and even I, I, I hear less and less is defined by government and more like marriage is just me wanting to commit to somebody and I get to do whatever I want and the government just needs to recognize what I want to do, I do what I want. And there's so many legitimate reasons why government, this is actually, you know, in college, you know, um, you know, wrestling with that libertarian streak and all that and thinking I was libertarian. It was actually marriage that made me say, no, I don't want, I'm not a libertarian personally because I think government has, it's not just to, to, to um, protect people, it's also to, to um, foster that which is positively good. And marriage is one of those things where it needs to foster that which is positively good, and that is between one man and one woman. Um, Anyway, I just went down, opened up a can of worms there. Uh, I probably shouldn't have said that. But um, this is the issue for me that made me not libertarian. Um, Because I think the government should say, no, this is good and right for people, and we want to encourage this kind of living. It is good not just for individuals, but for society as a whole. Because if if the family breaks down, what do we have? We have children being reared by who knows who. Um, and the government might think it can do that best, but that's not what God has, how God has created this. God has created the male-female, and we're going to get to this in a second, male-female relationship and marriage to come together for the rearing of children, for the growing and teaching and admonition of children to be good citizens in this world. So it's the family's job, the, the, the parent's job to do that. All right, way off, way, way afield here. All right, let's come back to the second person or second purpose here. First is mutual help and blessing of the husband and wife. Second, for procreation and the raising together of godly children. It would be a mistake for us to think marriage does not have this component. This is important to the marriage bond, like I was speaking of earlier. That's why um, the government has an interest in the marriage relationship, because it's for the good and the, and the stability of the entire culture, the entire nation. And so marriage is oriented toward the procreation and raising together of godly children. That does not mean you have an illegitimate marriage if you don't have children, right? That's not what this is saying, but it's saying marriage, the husband, wife, male, female are designed towards this end and this goal. And if this goal is not possible in this union, not to say, not to say that there's a medical issue or something like that, if it's not male and female who are in this relationship, it is not a proper marriage. It is not marriage according to the definition of marriage. It is required to be ordered toward procreation and raising together of godly children. Again, Christ did not have children, right? And he wasn't married either. But there are many reasons a marriage might not have children. I'm not saying it's a wrong or sinful marriage just because a marriage does not have children. So hear me loud and clear on that. But at the same time, marriage is designed for that end. Um, and there's many things in our world that help or that, that um, undermine this point. And number one is contraception. Contraception says children now is decided by me, and I'm up, it's up to me to decide when and where and how to have children. Whereas that's not how it was designed ultimately. Now, I don't want to go into contraception discussion here. I'm not, I don't want to go there. But the very existence of contraception is now undermining this end of marriage. We have to understand that. And as we make use of contraception and our Christian liberty and freedom, as I believe we can. Um, we need to be mindful of this, though, and make sure we're not buying into the narrative that now my sexuality is just about joy and my own enjoyment and fulfillment. That's not what it was designed for. Okay, I got to keep moving. I'm way behind. Um, to, and then the prevention of sexual immorality um, is the last piece here. And that's a quote from um, 1 Corinthians 7, um, roughly speaking. It's a paraphrase of that. Um, 
I'm not going to go into that. All right, let's go to the next next section here. Uh, next sentence. Marriage is also a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church. I love this phrase. It quotes here from Ephesians, or cites Ephesians, um, where it talks about um, Christ, uh, the husband to love the wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it goes on this kind of uh, aside, talking about the glory of Christ and his beloved bride, how he loves his bride, he purifies his bride, right? So the picture of Christ and his church is husband and wife. And then also the picture here is, uh, the citation here is, Revelation, um, where it's speaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lamb and his bride, this wonderful celebration. So this marriage picture of Christ and the church. And I love the language here, the differentiated relationship. It's not two, two, two exactly same partners here. There's a differentiated relationship, two parties of the marriage. And so that's, that's undercutting same-sex marriage, right? Because it's not a differentiated relationship the way we see this picture of Christ and his church. There's other reasons we can go back and read the differentiation into the other three purposes, um, but not today. That's for next time. I hope we can circle back to marriage. All other forms of sexual intimacy, including all forms of lust and same-sex sexual activity of any kind, are sinful, period. Sexual intimacy is designed for marriage. All forms of lust is sin. Same-sex sexual activity of any kind are sin. Same with lusts for anybody that is not one spouse. And in fact, probably even lust for your spouse, depending on how we're defining lust here, is sin, right? Lust is a, a disordered, a um, uncontrollable appetite, it's one way we can describe it. That's even sinful in your marriage. Now, having sexual desire for your spouse, that's good and right. But lust in this sense, or even, but even sexual desire for anybody who's not your wife, not your spouse, is sin. So all, this is getting to, the, to our heart, our desires. And there's entire statements on desire and temptation. We're going to get into this far more. But here the statement is, all other forms of sexual intimacy is sinful. Um, I do want to read 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9, um, just so we can have, again, God's word percolating here and undergirding all of this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So it's particularly named here. Now, you can look at this footnote. This footnote is original in the report, and it deals with that word that the English, uh, English Standard Version translates, um, what, men who practice homosexuality. It's two Greek words there, lots of debate. I think the, there's a footnote that's very good here explaining what those two words mean, excuse me, and why the ESV went with men who practice homosexuality. I think that's a good translation. So these things are not according to God's design for us. They are sin. All right. <sighs> my, uh, my watch says I'm working out right now. <laughs> I am. We're getting through it. We're getting through it. All right. Um, nevertheless, we are one quarter of the way through. We have 10 minutes left. Nevertheless, we do not believe that sexual intimacy in marriage automatically eliminates unwanted sexual desires, nor that all sex within marriage is sinless. So marriage is not your get-out-of-jail-free card where sexual sin is gone. You need to be very careful because I think that's a, a, a statement the church has um, implicitly made for a, gener for a generation. I grew up kind of with that sense that like, okay, whatever sexual problems you might have, whatever temptations or whatever, you know, guys, pornography, stop it. Just wait till you get married. You're going to be fine. 
Not true. Not true. Sexual sin does not conclude when you get married. Um, sexual intimacy in marriage does not automatically eliminate unwanted sexual desires. Whether that's lust for same sex, lust for opposite sex, it is not a cure-all. Um, nor does all sex within, nor that we, we deny that all sex within marriage is sinless. Right? There are ways you can violate your marriage partner sexually, right? By doing things they don't want, um, by um, doing things they do not consent to. Um, there are ways to still sin against your spouse sexually. All right, uh, let's keep moving. We all stand in needs of God, in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation whether married or not. Moreover, sexual immorality is not the unpardonable sin. Again, this is key, right? There's so many messages out there that said, um, if you, you know, have sex uh, before marriage, you are now dirty and nobody's going to want you. How horrible of a message that is to people, right? Um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that includes your sexual sin. Praise God. Now, of course, do we sin? Because, you know, so the grace can abound? By no means, right? And no means, no way is this license for sin, but we must keep in the core of this God's grace in mind for sinners like you and me. All right, done preaching. Let's keep going. Uh, sexual immorality is not the un an unpardonable sin. There is no sin so small that it does not deserve damnation. The smallest lustful intent deserves damnation. And there's no sin so big it cannot be forgiven. There's no hope of forgiveness. There is, sorry, there is hope and forgiveness for all who repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ. So um, here we're, 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 I think, mostly arguing against actually errant church teaching um, on sexuality, on marriage um, here. And I think it's a helpful corrective. All right. Oh, seven minutes. Image of God. <laughs> No questions. We're moving on. Here we go. <laughs> Statement two, image of God. Really, this is male, female. Um, this is gender, sexual, gender and sex. Okay. We affirm that God created human beings in his image as male and female. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This is um, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It is a constituent part of what it means to be human. We're either male or female. And this is important. Male and female, two sexes. Likewise, we recognize the goodness of the human body. Um, a lot of transgenderism is uh, incipiently, is that the right word? Whatever, is, uh, is, is taking a crack at, at creation, at the body, about at the physicality of our beings. It's saying, this is not actually good. The, our physical selves is not good. What's more important is this inner sense of self. Um, it's, it's kind of saying our physical nature is not good. And what they're strongly saying is, no, our physical nature is good. Our bodies are good. Created by God, it was very good after God finished creation of all things. And that's that quote from Genesis 131. John 114 is that the word became flesh. Jesus Christ took upon himself human flesh. Human flesh is good. Our bodies are good. Um, and we are called to glorify God with our bodies. That's that long uh, 1 Corinthians 6 passage, wonderful passage. 
As a God of order and design, God opposes the confusion of man and woman and woman as man, or man as woman, woman as man. Uh, we have, we have uh, laws in the Old Testament uh, that, that do not allow men to wear women's clothing. And this goes back to the order of creation. One point I've tried to make Sunday evening is that there God, has making, God is making distinctions in creation, good distinctions, rightful distinctions for the purpose of order in his creation. And we must uphold these distinctions in creation, including the distinction between male and female. It is a good distinction that we cannot blur the lines between. While situations involving such confusion can be heartbreaking and complex... We'll revisit this in a minute. Men and women could be helped to live in accordance, or should be helped to live in accordance with their biological sex. Their biological sex is determinative of who we are to live according with, or what we are to live according with. Um, I'm going to keep moving on. Again, we're going to spend a whole time, whole week on this, and I do have five more minutes, despite what that clock says. So I'm going to use all five more minutes. Nevertheless, we ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. So here's, here's you probably know this, but here's the basic um, um, uh, way that transgender advocates speak. We have um, sex, which is kind of assigned at birth, but then we have gender, which is our true inner self, right? And so um, if there's a... Uh, confusion between the two, typically people are bringing their, their physical sex in line with their internal gender. And so they're now trying to live out their gender in a particular way now through their sex. So um, sex and gender are two separate concepts when they've never been separate concepts before. Um, now in um, transgender ideology, they're separate concepts. So what they're saying here is that yes, it is true. Some people have a, have a confused sense of gender identity. Um, uh, it used to be called, even in secular counseling, secular psychology, um, gender dysphoria, where you don't, you're, you're confused. And that is a legitimate thing, where people are confused about um, how to live in their body that they have. It is legitimate. And so I love their um, encouragement here that we need to have compassion on people. We, we, we need to listen. We need to care for them. Now, that doesn't mean to affirm in that direction, but we need to have compassion because it is hard. When somebody comes forward and says, I'm a man's trapped in a woman's body, what we need to have is compassion for that person because they are deeply, deeply aching and hurting. And our first response should not be, well, did you not know God created a man, male, and female, and so you need to, you're a female, be a female. Well, let's get there, but say, that sounds really, really hard. And it sounds like you're really hurting. I want to hear about that. Let's start there. And then we can bring God's truth to bear on that as they are willing to listen, as they know we actually care about them as a whole being. And so I appreciate this encouragement here. We recognize that the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature, which may include how we think of our own gender and sexuality. So uh, the fall has affected our desires, our mental capacities, affected our physical bodies, right? The effects of the fall has affected us in these ways. And so we need to understand, yes, people struggle, and that's the effects of the fall that they're living with. That, may be not, that might not be your particular struggle, but it doesn't mean it's not a legitimate struggle. 
Moreover, some persons in rare instances may possess an objective medical condition in which their anatomical developments may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal, chromosomal sex. Such persons are also made in the image of God and should live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. So this is a big issue I'm not touching today. Um, but there's a lot of discussion. What does intersex mean? You know, there, there's a lot of uh, ways that a lot is lumped in that category, probably more than actually should be. Um, when you actually when you dive into the details of what they're defining there, but there are there is still that 0.001%. I think it's like I forget the I, I forget the exact statistics, but very very little people who who do are they are um, um, sexually ambiguous. What's that? No. Um, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, Hermaph or yeah, there's hermaphrodite, um, uh, which isn't actually true because they can't actually procreate on their own. Um, so that even is a sleight of hand using that language. But there are there are people that are um, uh, sexually ambiguous, um, legitimately, and so that's a very difficult pastoral situation. How do we handle that? But the exception does not define the overarching um, discussion, and we need to be careful about that. Letting the exception actually shows us no, there's something. And that's not right about this. That doesn't mean this person can't be a godly person or this person isn't someone to love and to call to Christ, but it does mean that that's an exception to the rule of male-female. Um, and it, I think the exception here does indicate that there's a rule underneath it. So, oh, all right, 17 seconds over. Um, I will not open it up for questions right now, but I'm happy, I want to talk about this. And the goal here is we need to be talking about this. Talk about this with other believers. Talk about this with your friends. Talk about this. We need to be engaging with this. And all that we talked about today, I want to circle back around. So don't think this is the only discussion we're having about marriage and transgenderism. We're going to come back around to that later. This is just to, to begin you thinking about this, and we'll begin next time. I forget number three, statement number three. Does anybody know? Um, we'll, we'll begin with uh, statements three, four, and I believe five next time as well. So um, be in prayer for that for next week as we all um, want to tackle these important issues. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you made us male and female in your image and that you've designed us um, to need one another. And I pray for all the marriages here represented that you would be glorified in them, that they would represent and show forth to the world Christ and his church. And I pray for those who are not married. I thank you for them and their service to the church. I pray that you would bless them and that you would give them the desires of their heart, whether that is to be married or whether that is to be single. Oh Lord, I pray that you would minister to all of us as we are reminded of our need of Christ every day. And now bless us as we go forth to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit be present and show us the risen Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.